2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 13. Give ear to the word of God. Paul writes, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescent has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus when you come. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, Timothy, I've mentioned a few times, but everybody wasn't always here for everything. Uh, Timothy is the last of Paul's letters or epistles that we have preserved for us in the word of God. Uh, It's the last book of the Bible that Paul wrote, as far as we know, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He may have written other letters, but we don't have them uh, in the scripture. They weren't preserved in God's wisdom and providence for us. Um, And some commentators say that that when you got to the end of verse 8 of this chapter, that that sort of marks the end, for the most part, of the body of the letter. In other words, Paul's main argument, his main instructions for Timothy His main exhortations regarding the church in general ended at chapter 4, verse 8. That's the end of of the bulk of Paul's theological instruction regarding ministry uh, uh, that he was writing to Timothy for. Um, But, you know, even as preaching, uh, preaching through a letter like this, it's very easy sometimes to forget that they're letters. Even the fact that we sometimes use the word epistle, they're kind of interchangeable. And if I were to ask you what an epistle is, or if you were to ask me what one is, um, I would just cheat and say it's a letter. But epistle just sounds, you know, more official and, and uh, reverent and all these things. But these, this is a letter. And so that being the case, it, it's helpful for us to remember that for all of the, the theological depth that Paul expresses here and teaches us, uh, it's not a theological treatise uh, or, or formal instruction, uh, essentially. It's what he writes here is very much personal in nature, and that really comes to our attention when you get to the closing, the closing salutation from verses 9 to the end of the letter. Much, much of what Paul says in verses 9 through 22, it doesn't take much for you to read it and see that this is the case. Much of what Paul says there really has no direct, really direct application for us in some ways. And what I mean by that for example, is that Paul is not telling you and me to do our best to come to him soon, right? We're not supposed to book a flight uh, to, to Rome. You might want to do that on your own for a vacation, but you know, Paul's not writing to you and I saying to come to him. Uh, he's not telling you and I to greet Prissa and Aquila, the household of Anesiphorus in verse 19. Uh, what he says in this closing salutation, the direct application is really for Timothy and Timothy alone as far as what Paul is, who Paul is telling this to and what he's telling him to do. But that being said, there's, there's certainly a lot of application for you and I today as well, even from this closing salutation that Paul gives uh, to Timothy here. Here Paul goes uh, in, in some ways into a lot of detail about his sufferings, his trials. Uh, and so for us to learn what application there is for us, what we should do differently in our lives, what we should believe about Christ, it might just take a little bit more work on our part uh, to study and understand what that application might be in our own given circumstances, in our own 
day. And so what I'd like to do here this morning is, is just briefly examine, examine a little bit of the relevance and application of these verses in Paul's salutation, uh, how it's relevant for us, starting in verses 9 to 13. Now, what Paul does in these verses, as we just read, is he goes into some you know, really sad detail, if you think about what he's talking about, about the way that Paul, in his biggest you know, trial in some ways, it is his, you know, his hour of need, his darkest hour. Uh, in a lot of ways, Paul was forsaken by those who were supposed to stand with him. You know, it's bad enough to be imprisoned for the gospel, to be enchained for preaching the gospel of Christ. It's bad enough that he was on death's door. I mean, we don't know. It may have been months. It may not have been, you know, it probably wasn't days or weeks. But somewhere on very soon on the horizon, Paul knew he was going to be executed under Rome, uh, in, under Nero. He was going to be beheaded. He knew what kind of death he was going to die. He knew it was only a matter of time. And then to make, to add insult to injury in some ways, that the men of God who were supposed to stand with him left him. One of whom, Paul uses the word deserted or forsook. Like Demas forsook Paul. He didn't just happen to leave. He turned his back on Paul and left him in his greatest hour of need. And so that, I think, gives some, some light and context to what Paul's instructions were to Timothy. And so in light of his present afflictions, Paul asks Timothy, among other things, get here quickly. You know, don't waste time. You, know, you better get here soon if you want to see me. And Paul really wanted to see him. He tells him to bring Mark with him, verse 11, which is we're going to see is a pretty remarkable thing for him to say. And he also tells him, it might seem like a, like a really, rather kind of indescript thing. He tells him to bring him things like his cloak. You know, it's a heavy jacket of some kind. Uh, and his books and above all the parchments. Paul is asking him, bring me these practical things that I need. You know, that, that, that's something that we should never, never take too lightly that, you know, even the best of us, even the most important, someone like Paul had practical needs that someone had. Uh, he needed them uh, to fill for him. So we're going to look at a few things, Lord willing, from our text. The first thing that Paul calls our attention to uh, in our text in verses nine and ten was that he was just about alone in his sufferings. He was he was basically abandoned or deserted or forsaken even by some. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. He says, Do your best uh, to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has, and the word, it's a strong word, he's deserted me, or forsaken him. He's deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Now, we don't know the extent, you know, how much we're supposed to read into this forsaking by Demas. It, it sounds like a very bad thing when he says, in love with this present world. You know, this isn't just Demas taking off. This is Demas, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. It's something, a moral failing on his part. Now, the fact that he went to Thessalonica probably means he may not have abandoned the faith. He may have gone to Thessalonica and gone to the church there. It may have seemed much less dangerous to him uh, to profess Christ there than it did where Paul was, you know. Paul was on trial, was, had been on trial for his life. Paul was under the threat of execution for the gospel. Essentially, that was the reason for it. And so anybody associated with Paul, you know, you can do the math, right? You're like, well, if they're going to cut his head off for preaching Christ, and I'm sitting here hanging around with Paul and constantly visiting him in the prison, 
you know, it's not going to take much of a rocket scientist to realize that you might, you might get yourself in trouble too. And so that's probably something along those lines that Demas, uh, why he left. The other two, we don't know why they left. It doesn't, he doesn't say the same thing about them that he did about, about Demas. He doesn't say they were in love with the present world, that kind of a thing. But either way, they weren't there anymore. And suddenly Paul was just there with, with Luke. And so uh, no doubt Paul wanted to see not just anybody in particular. Paul wanted to see Timothy. You remember in 1 Timothy 1 verse 2, uh, the first letter he wrote to Timothy, he calls him his, quote, true child in the faith. Like there were fellow workers in the gospel to Paul, and then there was Timothy. Like Paul was never married, he never had kids, but God gave him a son. And that son was his fellow in ministry, his son Timothy, whom he trusted entrusted in the ministry and the gospel. Well, now he wants his true son in the faith to come see him and help him and even encourage him in his time of need before he went home to be with the Lord. And so one of the things I think that we need to remember when we read things like this is that Paul, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get the idea that Paul was like the Terminator. You know, you, you read the book of Acts and he's literally stoned to death. And he gets back up, dusts himself off, and goes to the next town. Like he's, when you read the list, the litany of the sufferings and the persecutions he endured, uh, I, I can't even comprehend going on. I would have retired years ago if I had gone one through one thing that Paul went through. Yeah. Shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, left for dead, imprisoned. How many times, you know, in the city of Ephesus, there was a riot. I mean, a riot, and he was at the center of it. Bloodthirsty people wanted him dead, and they finally got their way, but, but God, God watched over him through all these things. But Paul was not a robot. Paul was not an automaton with no feelings. And, and, and you know, it, being called by Jesus Christ to be an apostle did not make him some kind of superman. Paul was not impervious to or oblivious to the many sufferings and persecutions that he endured for the sake of Christ. And his gospel. And so when Paul was forsaken by a trusted friend and fellow worker in the gospel, it stung. It grieved him. It burdened him. It's why he brings it up. No doubt when Timothy read these words, he was probably horrified to think of his father in the faith being deserted by these people. When you read of in the New Testament, you'll find at least two other passages uh, where Demas is mentioned by name in a positive light. Paul mentions him in the book of Colossians as a trusted colleague in ministry, and all of a sudden, Demas is a deserter. You know, when you read the diaries, the letters, the biographies of some of the choicest servants of God throughout the history of the church, and I hope that you will do that from time to time, uh, you will certainly read of many of their joys, their successes. You will read very often of the manifest blessing of God upon their labors in the gospel, that God often sealed and confirmed their ministries in the gospel by the conversion of many a lost soul to Christ. But one of the things you will also find in those biographies, and maybe if you've read some of these, you'll know what I'm talking about. You'll find on some of the same pages that some of those great men of God that God used so greatly throughout the history of the church also struggle with bouts of discouragement and even depression at times. Sometimes to the point where it wrecked their physical health. Some of the greatest men of God you read about, you get the impression they died early. They died rather young and sometimes probably because of the stress they were under and the depression and things that they were under related to their, to their work in the gospel. It doesn't mean that they lacked faith or they were weak. It just means things aren't easy. 
You know, they should have had a class on that in the seminary. Maybe some of us would have dropped out. You know, it's like, this, this isn't easy to do. And not to compare anything we're doing today with what Paul did. But, the, you know, it's, all, all I'm saying is these are things that are real things. And there's nothing unspiritual about feeling these things and feeling the weight of discouragements like this. Paul felt them, and Paul even wrote, the, wrote about them in this letter. Think about the Apostle Paul's description of his thorn in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10, he writes this. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, God had given him visions, right? A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited, to keep him humble. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, what what that thorn exactly was, uh, if you ever read the commentaries uh, on on that book, Uh, You'll find that it's been the subject of much, I think, unnecessary debate and speculation. Paul doesn't tell us what it was. Uh, Some have said it was something to do with his eyesight uh, and that kind of a thing that may be the case. We don't know. Uh, Whatever it was, Paul seems to have lumped it in together with the rest of his sufferings for the gospel at the end of that passage. What does he say? He's content and he lists the things off. Weaknesses, hardships, persecutions, calamities, all these things. And why was he content even to endure those things? He says, when he was weak, he was what? Strong, not in himself, but strong in the Lord, which is what it takes for any believer to do anything, much less to do with the things that Paul did in the ministry. Now, Paul no doubt longed to see his son in the faith one last time uh, before he went home to be with the Lord, but his need to see him was made even more pressing by those who had abandoned him in his chains. Notice again the wording in verses 9 to 10. He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. And then that little word for. That word for means because. He's connecting the one thing with what comes after. He's saying, do your best to come to me soon. Why? For or because Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It was in some measure because Demas had forsaken him and the others had left his side. That's why Paul really needed to see Timothy even more at this time. Uh, Two things, uh, lessons for us, two two things of application, I think, for us. Maybe you could think of more, certainly. But two things. First, none of us as believers in Christ are beyond the need of help. None of us are an island unto ourselves. You know, there's a reason that, that God didn't save you if you're a believer and leave you by yourself. In fact, you know, I I often say this, uh, and I think it's something that's even more apropos in our day. I often say something like this. Christianity is personal. You have to believe in Christ. You're not saved by your parents' faith. You're not saved by osmosis. Well, I was in it. I was in the good church. And so if I'm in the good church, then I'm fine. And if I go to bad church, then I should worry. But as long as I'm in a good, solid church, it'll rub off on me somehow and I'll get in by proxy or something, you have to believe on Christ for salvation for yourself to be saved. By grace you've been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8. But Christianity, while it's personal, is never private. 
It's never private. He, he puts you, if he saved you, he puts you in the body of Christ, which is the church. And the body, that analogy is there for a reason. Everybody is one part of the body. No, no body is, is all ears or all eyes or all hands or all feet or anything like that. We, the, the, the purpose of that is we all need each other to function properly. None of us is beyond the need of help. None of us are exempt from discouragement, trials, even depression. We all need encouragement at times. We all need prayer. We all need the fellowship of fellow believers in Christ. And this is especially true in time of trial and affliction. There should be no lone rangers in the faith. Whenever somebody tells me, oh, I'm a believer, but oh, I don't go anywhere, I, I immediately worry about them. I immediately say, are you sure? Are you sure you're a Christian for one? But, you know, when you read those, those, when you watch those wildlife shows, I know we don't like watching those sometimes, and, you know, the lion is out in the field, and there's a bunch of wildebeests or zebras, like, which one gets picked off? It's always the same. It's always the one that's straggling away from the herd. That gets, like, that's, there's a lesson. Like, you shouldn't be by yourself. There's strength in numbers, and we all need, we all need help in many, in many ways. Uh, and so don't try to be more spiritual than Paul himself. You know, sometimes as believers, we, we have this thing that we try to be more biblical than the Bible. Bad idea. Shouldn't do that. And we also shouldn't try to be more spiritual than Paul himself. And in fact, even the Lord Jesus Christ asked his disciples to stay by his side and watch with him in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? He told them to watch and pray. No doubt part of his sufferings included being forsaken by all his disciples at his arrest. Remember, he told, he told Peter before the cock crows three times, you're going you're to abandon me. You're going to deny me. And he did just that. Even Peter denied Christ and abandoned him at his, at his arrest. So don't isolate yourself from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Tell your closest brethren or your sisters in Christ your troubles and ask for their help and prayer when you need it. Second, uh, Second is that, you know, for, be there for others in their time of need. Sometimes you're the one in need. Sometimes the other people are the ones in need, especially those of the household of faith. We may not know anybody, and we probably never will, Lord willing, who's in jail or on death row for the sake of the gospel, as Paul was. But we all know shut-ins, don't we? We all know people who are in the hospital, who are in rehab places and things like that. And I, I have to say the timing of this text coming up at the moment uh, I can't help but think it was providential on God's part that, uh, you know, as a pastor, I can hardly tell you how, how much joy and pride it gives me to see that and to hear from our shut-ins, and we have a number of them, uh, that tell me when all of you come see them. You know, it's, it's one thing for a pastor to make a visit, and I am happy to do that, and I try my best to do that uh, from week to week, to try to visit our people who are in the hospital or in nursing homes and, or if they're stuck at home. Um, but I have to say, in some ways, I'm guessing that most of our people, as much as they appreciate that, they might be saying, yeah, but that's your job. You know, you know what I mean? Like, you're, you're kind of doing your job, Pastor, and so you're visiting me. It's like kind of an official thing, and, you know, you're supposed to do what you're supposed to do. But when you all do it, that's not your job. Nobody can look at you and say, well, well you're only doing that because such and such. No, you're, they, are, they are encouraged by that, I am sure. I've heard it from many of them themselves, and I have to tell you as a pastor, um, nothing brings joy to my heart more than hearing that the body of Christ is acting like the body of Christ. And so even in recent weeks with, with Mary and Nancy and Paul and Kelly and others that have, 
had these kind of trials, I, it just makes me happy to know that uh, all of you all have been going to visit them. So I ask that you keep doing that. Uh, you don't have to tell me about it, but uh, be rest assured, half the time I find out about it from them. But uh, so, but just keep doing that. That's the love of Christ at work in the body as it should be, and it's well pleasing to God. You know, Jesus, our Lord, had much to say about that kind of thing in the Gospels, didn't he? If you think about it, John thirteen thirty five, he said, "By this, all people." will know that you are my disciples. And how is it? If you have love for one another. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, talking about the sheep and the goats. And what does he say is one of the ways that you can tell the sheep from the goats, that you can tell the righteous from the unrighteous. You can tell those who are blessed by the Father and who will inherit his kingdom. One of the things they do is they are those who will visit those who are sick or in prison. Verse 39. And what does Jesus even say about those who do that? Inasmuch as you do it unto the least of these, my brethren, you do it unto whom? Me. Like it's, it was important enough for Jesus to bring it up when he talked about the judgment. First John 3, verses 16 to 18, he says this. By this we know love that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So let us not close our hearts against our brothers and sisters in need, or even love them just in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, the second thing that jumps off the page from our text, I think, is the restoration of Mark. I think this is the the part that is the most encouraging, especially in light of what he read about what he wrote about Demas. Mark is the one, if you're familiar with the Bible, with the New Testament and who Mark is. Mark is the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. Uh, Many scholars believe that uh, his close association with with the apostle Peter makes the gospel of Mark more or less Peter's version, his account of the gospel given through Mark, in some ways, uh, you might know it was the house of, of the family of this same Mark, where the church was meeting in prayer in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12. Remember when Herod had killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and then he arrested Peter because he knew the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, liked it and wanted to show, and he was going to put him to death too. And the church met at a house. Whose house were they praying at? At Mark's family's house. Remember when Peter got out, the angel got him out, and he came to the door, and he knocked on the door, and the little girl said, oh, it's Peter. And everybody said, oh, it's his, it's his I think they meant it's his ghost. Yeah. Like, he's already dead. Why are we praying? That, it was Mark's house. Like, Mark was there almost certainly for that uh, when that happened. Uh, for a time in Mark's younger days, he even joined Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys. Like, we don't know how old he was, but we're pretty sure he was a young man. He was, he was ministering with Paul and Barnabas going all over the place. As a young man. But then in Acts 13, 13, we read this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. That's a lot of peas. Uh, and it says, and John left them and returned to, excuse me, to Jerusalem. Now John, it says in Acts 12, 25, was also known as Mark. So the John that left them was Mark, was this Mark. The same Mark we've read about earlier in the book of Acts. And so... Uh, why did Mark leave? It doesn't say. It doesn't say what happened or why he left, but it's likely that it had something to do 
with the sufferings and the persecutions that they had endured for the gospel. It's as if he saw Paul and Barnabas being treated the way they were, sometimes violently, and said to himself, I don't think this is for me. I, I, I didn't count the cost. I didn't sign up for this. And so for a time, he went back home. He went back to Jerusalem, it says. So in a way, according to Paul, this was dereliction of duty. You know, you could almost picture Paul saying, and he didn't say this, but, you know, what did you think you were coming along for? This wasn't a vacation. We're not on a cruise. Like we're, we're preaching the gospel at, at hazard of our lives. Mark had gone AWOL. You know, Mark had, in some ways, you think of it like a soldier deserting his comrades in time of battle. He was a deserter. As far as Paul was concerned, Mark was a deserter. If you spend time in the military, that's about as low of a term as you could possibly get. You know, we have good conduct discharge, bad conduct discharge, and then there's desertion. It's its own category. It's, it's about as bad as it. That's how Paul looked at Mark, as far as we can tell from what happened afterward. And why do we think that? Look at Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. Acts 15, 36 to 41, it says this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So they were going to retrace their steps where they had gone. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take him uh, take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. Now you can read too much or too little into that, but Paul did not want any part of Mark going along. Like they were retracing their steps in ministry and Paul was saying, yeah, he wasn't there for this. He, remember, he, he abandoned us. He didn't do this. And it says, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Paul and Barnabas joined at the hip. This was so bad, they split up. They're like, well, if you're going to take Mark, I'm going to go this way. You go that way. You know, good, good luck and, and uh, go on about our separate. Barnabas says, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, that must have been some disagreement for Paul and Mark or Paul and Barnabas to go their separate ways. And there's no doubt that God used that. I mean, he split the team up and more work probably got done in some ways uh, just for the reason of it. But look at how Paul speaks about Mark in our text in 2 Timothy. In light of all that, in light of whatever Paul's feelings were towards Mark before, he goes from not wanting anything to do with him in ministry to telling Timothy to get him and bring him along with him, quote, for he is very useful to me for ministry. That is remarkable to think what God did in, in Mark's life and, and for Paul to see it, to recognize it. And when he's on, at, at death's door, telling his son in the faith to come to him, he tells him, go get Mark. And not just go get Mark because, you know, I like him, I feel bad. He's useful to me for ministry. I, I said it wrong. He's very useful. Like that's what Paul thought of Mark there at the end. Um, he's very used. Now, what was this ministry that Paul talked about for Mark? Uh, the word ministry is the same word that we translate service. Like when you say a deacon, we basically take that Greek word and turn it into an English word. 
the diaconate, you know, the, the word that we get from, for, that we use for deacon, the word deacon is a ministry of service. It's kind of redundant. It, that's what the word means. Well, it's the same word that we translate ministry. So was Timothy being useful for Paul for gospel ministry? Was Timothy being useful to Paul personally to help him with his, whatever his needs were in prison? Was it both? I tend to think of, because it's, he says the ministry, he's talking about gospel ministry. And so Paul, in chains, in prison, awaiting execution, was still mindful of preaching the gospel, of getting the gospel out. And he saw Mark as someone that, he could be, that could be very useful to him, even in doing that while he was in prison. God had restored Mark by his grace and made him very useful again. And think about these words of Paul in the, in the context of what he just mentioned about Demas in verse 10. How heavy that one thing weighed on him, and then he, it, it's like it brings to his mind, but there's Mark. Mark, Mark kind of did that, but look where Mark is now. Uh, Demas had forsaken him, but what a blessing and encouragement for the Apostle Paul, and I hope for us, that in spite of being abandoned by Demas, who had once been a trusted friend and ally in ministry, that now there was such a one as Mark whom God had restored to him after a similar ordeal previously. Now, um, and so there's a lesson, I think, for us uh, as believers, and, and this may be a hard lesson for some of us, but let us not be so quick to write people off. I know I, I may have a streak of this. Maybe you do, too. Once somebody crosses you, that's it. You know, we have a saying, so-and-so's dead to me. And I hope we're kidding when we say that most of the time. But we, we all probably have those people where, like, I used to be really tight with this person. And, you know, persona non grata, do not, do not pass go, do not collect $200, don't, do not expect a Christmas card, that kind of a thing. We should be very, very slow to write people off, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we were offended and don't see eye to eye on things, on big things. Now, Paul said him back in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Verses 24 to 26, we looked at that a number of months ago. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, right, bearing with, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's an extreme example, right? But what's the point there? God can, can grant repentance. God can grant restoration. Who knows but that God might do that. He might grant repentance and restoration. In some cases, even to someone who has undergone church discipline to the extent of being excommunicated. That happens. You know, uh, there, there are many purposes for the biblical practice of excommunication when it gets to that kind of a point. Um, one of them is for the health of the church. For the peace and purity of the church, that sin, that the leaven might be rooted out. If someone's not going to repent of their sin and they're going to keep going on in scandalous sin, you don't want to allow that. You can't just act like that's fine and just let that spread. So it's for the good of the people in the church that, that, uh, that you do that. But one of the reasons, and this isn't always brought up, but one of the reasons you also do it is the hope of restoration. It's one of the goals. It's not just to get rid of them and write them off. It's to, it's to by God's grace, hopefully, to bring them to repentance. You know, uh, as, as a, a Philly sports fan, one of my many flaws, uh, one of the things that we're known for is booing. Um, so, you know, anyway. Um, but it's often been said in that context is that we boo because we want to cheer. 
We don't boo because we're just jerks. We might be jerks. But we boo because we want to cheer, right? We don't hate the player most of the time. We want them to do better. You know, we, we expect better in some ways. Well, in some ways, it's not the same thing. But, you know, sometimes you, you excommunicate somebody. We haven't had to do that, thankfully, but it, it could happen. But the hope is to bring them back. The hope isn't to cast them out and say, well, good, good thing they're gone. Never want to see them again. If God grants repentance, genuine repentance to them, we are to forgive them and welcome them back. Paul says so in, in, in the book of Second Corinthians, and we should certainly be doing that. We should thank God for his mercy when he does that. I've seen it happen. Maybe you have too, and it's a blessing and a great thing of God's grace. Let us take the example of Demas as a warning of sorts as well. You know, it's one of those, those temptations when you read a text like this. You know, you ever watch a, a movie? Uh, you, you watch a movie, and uh, there's a good guy and a bad guy. Who are you when you watch the movie? You're always the good guy. You never put yourself in the other's shoes, right? Well, I think we need to take the example of Demas as a warning, as an admonition of sorts, that we might not be as he was in love with this present world. Or It's a strange way of putting it in the Greek. Paul says it's, it's a way of putting it, you could say, as that he was in love with this now age. Not the age that was to come when Christ returns, uh, but this now age, this present world. That is an ever-present temptation. That is not just a first century on Paul's journeys kind of temptation. That's a temptation we all face, uh, I think maybe so, even more so now in our day. Uh, 1 John two fifteen to 17 says this. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a strong way of putting it. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but, for, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So by God's grace, may the Lord keep us from such sins as loving the world, this present world. And may he restore those among us, as he even did with, with Mark, those who have fallen into it. Well, last but not least, look again at what Paul says in verse 13. He says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Uh, now, the cloak, we don't know all these things for you know great detail, but the cloak was probably like a warm jacket of some kind. Uh, remember, later on in this very chapter, Paul tells Timothy to come before winter. Do your best to come before winter. What happens in winter? It gets cold. He's in a prison. He wasn't in the, the uh, Four Seasons or whatever. Uh, he's probably asking him to bring something. I'm going to need that. Please bring that. You know, I wasn't planning on being arrested at the time I was and didn't think to bring it. So he asks him uh, to bring it for practical help for his everyday needs. But notice what else he asks him to bring. His books and especially the parchments. Now, Paul, at, very, at the very least, Paul still felt the need to study. And to grow in grace, some commentators, we don't know this for sure, we can't be sure, uh, but some commentators believe that when he asks for the parchments, he's talking about scripture. Bring me the copies of scripture that I left at this place. Bring those to me here while he was in prison. So Paul, even with his impending martyrdom on the horizon, did not see fit to dispense and do away with his own studies, his own learning, his own work in ministry to those God had placed around him in using those scriptures. As he says in 2 Timothy 2.9, he himself, he says, was bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. You can chain the preacher, you can't chain the word. He knew God would even use the word in prison 
if he had it there to read, to study, and to preach, and to teach. God could use Paul. Paul knew that God could use him even in his current state, even in his chains in some way to someone to preach the gospel. And I'll say this, if the Apostle Paul in his condition felt the need to continue to read and to study even when he was practically at death's door, none of us should ever suppose that we could be content with what we've attained in our growth in grace and knowledge. None of us should be content to say, well, everything I learned and needed to learn, I learned in the fifth grade or I learned in Sunday school. I've I've got my bare minimum and I'm done. Paul was waiting for execution and he tells Timothy, bring me my books and especially the parchments. And I I dare say Paul knew a lot more than any of us are ever going to know in this life. And yet he still wanted to study and to read. So let every one of us who believes in Christ, regardless of how young or how old we may be, regardless of how long we may think that we have left in this life or how much or how little the prospects we may see in our own minds uh, for God continuing to use us, we may not think there's much pro, you know, prospects of God using us, but let us always resolve to seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3:18. It's an ongoing need for everybody. Psalm 1, you know, it's the one who, who delights in the law of God and meditates in it day and night that will always bear fruit, whose leaf, leaf never withers, who never fails to bear fruit. Uh, the one who will be with the Lord forever. That We should always be seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. May the Lord Jesus in his great grace and mercy towards us be pleased to work in you and me by his Holy Spirit, that you and me might take these things to heart and bear the fruit of them in our lives. To God be the glory. Let's, let's pray.